I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and that you will turn in them, if you have not done so already, to Matthew chapter 13, where we will look further at verses 47 through 52. If using one of the Bibles that are provided for you in the backs of the chairs would bless you, uh, you can find our passage for today on page 819. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52. I actually want to start with a little bit of a personal note and let you have a brief update on the situation with my throat that I know some of you have been praying for, and I very much appreciate it. I have a surgery coming up on November 9th to remove this uh, granuloma that apparently has actually been growing, and so they want to get rid of that and uh, do some pathology on it and see what we may need to see in the future. But that does mean that there's going to be a couple weeks of uh, my dear brother Brian filling in and preaching, and I'm really looking forward to being here with you and uh, listening to his preaching ministry while my throat recovers. So I wanted to let you know about that and ask for your continued prayers as singing and speaking are kind of my two uh, sources of income. So very much, very much uh, eagerly anticipating what the Lord will do through that. Okay, the passage that Noe just read for us contains two small parables. The first is this final bookend to the seven parables of the third major discourse of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. The second part of, second parable in this passage is kind of more of like a concluding exhortation through a parabolic statement. And so this first part of our passage, this first parable, has a very clear two-part message, which is that King Jesus will distinguish between genuine family, kingdom family, and fraudulent family, you might say. And secondly, that his kingdom family will be granted access to the kingdom to enjoy forever while the frauds, so to speak, will be given the judgment that their sins deserve. That's the basic two-part message of that first parable in verses 47 through 50. Well, the second part of the passage in verses 51 and 52 are a bit less clear. And in fact, they are the subject of debate and discussion among scholars and theologians. If you have a study Bible with you and some notes underneath this passage, you can see perhaps what that study Bible's editorial team has come up with as an interpretation of these verses, but you can also read many commentators. You could read articles on the internet, and you will get a, a group of possible interpretations for these last two verses. Now, I would not feign expertise greater than any of the commentators that I read, but I would suggest that the interpretation of this second part of the, of the text before us today is simply that kingdom family members of Jesus or disciples of Jesus have been tasked with teaching what he taught. That's what I think the point is of this second part of the passage. And I actually think these two parts go together, which is why we're looking at them together and not one at a time. 
Think of how this final passage, verses 51 through 52, fits into the context of the entirety of this third discourse of Jesus in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. All of these parables, seven of them, and the messages of all of these parables have had to do with the kingdom of God, which we've defined as God's rule through God's king over God's world. And we've talked about how all of these parables fit together. I, I sought to give you an outline several weeks ago of how I think it breaks down with that first parable and then these three groupings of parables that fit together. Well, the one before us today is part of those bookended second and seventh parables in the discourse here. And then you've got, um, I broke it down this way as well. You can see these responses to the kingdom, the results of the responses in the parable of the weeds, which was the second one, and then more results of the responses in parable seven and how these all fit together. But in any case, that's where we are today. The seventh parable in this discourse where we're talking about how people respond to the kingdom call of Jesus, to the call of King Jesus, to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so each of these parables in this discourse of Jesus fits into the larger context of the message that Jesus is sharing, which is that the kingdom of God was being ushered in by its king, him. And so Jesus was using these parables, these short stories with a spiritual meaning, to teach and illustrate the importance of getting on board, as it were, with his kingdom and with him. And so in verses 47 through 52, we've got this final parable in these seven parables and then the concluding words that follow it in verses 51 through 52. And that's basically how I believe this passage shakes out for us. Jesus's bookended parable about the importance of responding to his kingdom called because of the reality that judgment is coming and then these final parabolic words regarding the task of teaching what he taught. But what does all of it mean for us? How does it affect the way we, as disciples of Jesus today, live? Well, I think there are at least three messages in this text for us. And the first is quite a sobering one. It is that judgment is coming. Read verses 47 through 50 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, the evil, into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting that verses 49 through 50 of Matthew 13, which we just read, are nearly identical to verses 41 and 42. You may not even have to 
turn a page to see verses 41 through 42. This is in Jesus' explanation of his second parable, the parable of the weeds. And he says in verses 41 through 42, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's part of why I consider the second and seventh parables as bookends to the message in Jesus' discourse. In the second parable, which actually is given in verses 24 through 30, where he tells the parable, it's a parable of weeds that are then distinguished between what was real wheat and what was simply a weed, the wheat being stored and the weeds being discarded. And then in the seventh parable before us today, in verses 47 through 50. And the message of both the second and seventh parables is that there is a day coming when true members of the kingdom of Jesus will be gathered by God for eternal residence in the kingdom's final state, while those who never embrace him as king will be judged. The simple difference between the parable of the weeds in verses 24 through 30 and the parable of the net before us in verses 47 through 50 is that the parable of the weeds has an agricultural image and the parable of the net has a fishing image. That's its only main difference. Jesus says that the kingdom is like a net that's gathering fish of every kind. The last time I went fishing, I wasn't really fishing, I was watching people fishing. We were in Alaska with Kate's brother and his family in 2019, and we went on this excursion with some of the members of their church up there in Alaska to something called dip net fishing. Have you ever heard of this? It's basically this really long metal pole with a circular uh, end with a net in the middle of it, and you just wade out into the river and wait for the salmon to get stuck in your net. And when you get one, you turn it, you pull it back to shore, and you add it to your, your cooler that hopefully you'll get to enjoy for dinner. They were targeting one kind of fish in this scenario. They were targeting salmon. That circular net had one aim. If it wasn't salmon, you weren't going to keep it. And actually, in that situation, there wasn't really very much else going on through that stream but the many salmon and this line of people all the way up and down the bank just with their, with their dip net, getting some supper. But this applies to other kinds of fishing too, doesn't it? I haven't been an uh, avid fisherman in my life. I have gone fishing several times. I've done enough to have had the experience of reeling in a line and finding what's on the end to be literal garbage that you have no interest in keeping or perhaps some other non-fish thing. And what do you do when the thing that you're fishing for isn't the thing that you're getting? You throw it away. You throw it either in a trash can, I suppose, if it's literal garbage, or you throw it back in if it's not what you're looking for. And that's exactly what Jesus is illustrating here. Just like the fishermen in Jesus' disciples, remember there were several fishermen in Jesus' disciples, just like they had experienced time and time again in their lives, God would cast a net, a wide net, so to speak, calling all people to repent and believe, that's in verse 47, fish of every kind. 
In fact, Jesus is using this fishing analogy, and it's one that he had used already. You could skip back. In fact, you might as well turn back just a few pages to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. I wonder if some of you already thought of this. This is when Jesus calls his disciples. Some of them, anyway. It says he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's what Jesus was talking about then in the calling of his first disciples, that they were going to be doing some fishing for men, for souls. That's what he is talking about in our text in verses 47 through 50 of Matthew 13. The advance of the rule of God through his king, Jesus, will be a lot like what happens when fishermen are sorting through the good and the bad fish at the end of a long day's work. One day, the kingdom advance of God will, in a sense, be done, and only real fish, to use Jesus' imagery, will be the ones sorted into storage and usefulness. The rest will be tossed, you might say, away. And so this is why I'm viewing this text as an indicator of both the horror and hope of kingdom sorting. Because on the one hand, the destiny of all those who have been caught by King Jesus into his kingdom is a beautiful destiny. They are sorted into their eternal home with their king in his presence for all eternity. But on the other hand, the destiny of those who aren't really his is one of judgment. And that judgment, just like it was described in the parable of the weeds that we looked at recently, is a harrowing judgment. It says in our text that the angels of God will be given a task most horrifying to separate the evil from the righteous, the evil heading to eternal damnation in a fiery furnace elsewhere described as hell. And so the truth about God's just judgment is both horrifying and hopeful because it is actually consistent with reality. That reality being that God is good that God is wise, that God is powerful. He is just and gracious. You remember when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34? I have verses 5 through 8 on the screen here, and I've highlighted these two lines. Where the Lord descends in the cloud and proclaims his name, 
to Moses and he begins to describe himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear those who are truly guilty. And goes on. And Moses' response at the end is that he quickly bows his head and worships. God says when he reveals himself to Moses, after Moses asks him to reveal himself to him, he says, I am the one who forgives transgressions and sin and will not clear those who remain guilty. So friends, Jesus, the king of the unexpected kingdom, is a gracious king, and he is also a just king. The judge of all the earth will do right. Friends, if he didn't exercise judgment of any kind whatsoever, what kind of a king would he be? He would be an unjust king. He would be someone who let things slide because he felt like it. He would be a king in whom no one could truly hope because what guarantee would there be that what was right would happen? That goodness would prevail. That wickedness would have no place in his kingdom, in his place of rule. If he let sin slide without atonement and forgiveness, of course, then what kind of God would he be? I've indicated this before. Part of the reason that we can be hesitant to embrace biblical teaching on the just judgment of God on unrepentant sinners is because we don't understand how bad sin is. We don't understand how just God is. We don't understand what holiness is. We don't understand how destructive sin can be. And then what we think is in the name of mercy, we think that if we were God, we might show some more compassion. But friends, the truth is, God has been compassionate. God has been merciful. He has shown compassion to undeserving sinners like you and me. That's the whole point of the Bible. Literally. That despite the sin of humanity, whom he lovingly created and brought into a relationship with him, he has made a way for their sins to be atoned for. And for that relationship with him to be restored. That's why Jesus came. That's why he said, I've been sent, as he was saying in this ministry, I've been sent to rule as the king of the kingdom. I am here and all who come to me in faith will be saved. Come to me and I will give you rest. You know, if you say amen after something like that, I promise I won't be offended. God loved the world so much that he planned from the start to make a way for the atonement of sins of the world and for the human race to be restored. Friends, God's judgment is not without compassion. It is not without 
mercy. He has made the way for sinners to be saved, and that way is through the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. He fulfilled that righteousness requirement. He lived the life perfectly that we should have lived, but could not and did not. And then he died as a sacrificial lamb, as an atonement for sin. And then he was risen, is risen for us. Hallelujah. Now, if you want to be on the side of King Jesus and be joyfully embraced in his kingdom, the second message of our passage today is that a response is required. Judgment is coming and a response is required. Now this call to a response is not necessarily expressed explicitly in the words of this text, but I think that message is clear in the whole context of what's going on here. Because remember, these parables of this third discourse are indicating over and over again that a response to the call of the kingdom is required. I think that's the whole point or, or message of this, these bookend parables about the weeds and about the net. The kingdom is here and the way you respond to it matters. The first, of course, being this agricultural uh, parable that there would be ultimately two kinds of uh, the first introductory parable being the one that speaks of all the different soils, there being two different kinds of soils, good soil and bad soil. The seed that is received is the good soil and the various kinds of bad soil who don't receive the seed for various reasons. Then the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net both express in no uncertain terms that how we respond is going to lead somewhere. Those who are in the kingdom who prove to have been good soil by their uh, receiving the seed of God's word, enjoying life in the kingdom forever, while those who prove to have been bad soil will be judged. Have you ever been uh, filling out an online form, whether making a purchase or uh, registering for some event or whatever, and you accidentally forget to fill one of the fields, one of the required fields in there, and you go to advance, and then a, a red message comes up, and it says, response required on the little asterisk by the one. Friends, a response is required to the call of Jesus. Every person who has ever existed is accountable for their response to King Jesus. And friends, you know, the judgment of God is aimed at the world, but in a very important sense, the judgment of God is also aimed at the church. And by that, I mean church members who would masquerade as true fish or real wheat or good soil or whatever image in these parables connects with you at the moment. Those people will be discerned by the judge. And even though a church our size probably doesn't regularly have large numbers of unbelievers in attendance, it's possible that some of our regular attenders or even members are not truly in Christ. It's possible that instead of truly embracing the rule of God in Jesus, someone might be simply enjoying 
religious rituals that they're used to that make them feel like their life has meaning. It's possible that they may simply enjoy or agree with the moral ethics of Christianity. Or they may really just connect with the cultural feelings of church, the community, and a worship service. I do not assume that to be true about anyone in this room, but, oh my friend, if that is you, remember only the soil that received the seed and embraced it was proven to be truly fruitful in the end. The soils that had an appearance for a time of being good, but ultimately proved hardened and rootless and ultimately were choked out and lifeless all together, bore no fruit at all. And so if that is you, my friend, I, I beckon you today to receive the mercy of God extended to you at this very moment. Through the reading and preaching of his word, this passage here in God's providence read and preached today to you if you've never trusted in Christ. Don't be afraid to admit that you've never been in Christ if that's true of you and do whatever it takes to possess the kingdom of God like the parables previous to the one we're looking at today. Be willing to sell all that you have in order to possess a greater treasure, Jesus, and a relationship with him. Of course, it's also possible that you're either in this room or listening online or recording later and you've never even pretended to have belief in Jesus. Well, the call to you is the same. Trust in him now. Respond to his kingdom call. Look at what's coming for you if you don't. But he is a wonderful, merciful Savior who loves to forgive and to embrace sinners like you and like me in his gentle grace. So come to him. A response is required. Well, I think the third message of our passage is so pertinent for our local church at this moment. And here it is. A mission has been given. And this is where the little tricky parabolic saying in verse 52 comes in. As I said just a few minutes ago, I believe the point here is that Jesus' disciples have been tasked with teaching what he taught. First, in verse 51, he asks them, Have you understood all these things? And then they say to him, Yes. And that's worth noting because all the way back at the beginning of this discourse, Jesus told them that the reason he was speaking in parables was so that the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed to them and concealed from non-disciples. And if you want more on that, you can listen to that old sermon from several weeks ago. When he's done with these parables, he asks them if they understand what he's been teaching, and they say yes. So to some extent, at least, they're tracking with him. The parables that he's using to teach about his kingdom are having their intended effect with them. And of course, we know as the narrative in the Gospels go on, there are plenty of things that the disciples do not understand. But in some sense, at this point, they're following. They're making connections that they ought to be making, and they, to some extent, understand. And then 
Jesus uses this really interesting parabolic phrase in response to their affirmative answer. And he starts with the word, therefore, right there in verse 52. In other words, he's saying, okay, since you understand these things, you see what I'm saying here? Do you understand? He asks, yes, they say. Okay, that being the case, he replies, and then he gives the rest of 52, which is, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And you may be wondering, what does this little phrase have to do with them understanding the parables of his kingdom? It's a bit cryptic, at least at first. Well, he's talking about scribes here. Every scribe, he says. What was a scribe? A scribe was an expert in the law, someone who was a teacher, an interpreter of the law, someone who was highly educated, a rather literate person in a rather illiterate society. They would have literally written down Jewish traditions that had been passed down orally over the centuries. And so the scribes were not actually always faithful to the scriptures. Sometimes their traditions that wound up being enforced as if they were biblical law weren't actually biblical law. But they were highly educated teachers of the people of God. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says every scribe. But interestingly, he's not talking about the scribes in the old covenant system. He's talking about scribes that have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's not talking about these guys who have popped up on the scene before in Matthew's gospel already, who are actually opposed to Jesus because of their rigid stance on laws and traditions of their religion, which he came to transcend. No, not these guys who opposed him, but rather a scribe who's pro-Jesus. A scribe who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven. Someone who's on board with his kingdom. Who's been trained, you could also say a disciple of the kingdom. That's the idea of training. Discipleship. Growth. Learning. Student. So he's talking about a student in the kingdom. A disciple in the kingdom who is also a scribe. Someone who is tasked with teaching. So he's talking about a disciple of the kingdom kingdom who's been tasked to teach about the kingdom. Friends, I think he's talking about his disciples here. I think he is saying that since they claimed to understand what his parables were teaching about the kingdom of heaven, they were getting kingdom training just like a Jewish scribe got law training. And, you know, I'm not sure if Jesus was taking a shot at any of the scribes who could have been eavesdropping. We don't know if any of them were or not. And even if they were, I don't know if they would have understood what he was saying. But if he was taking a shot at the scribes, that would be interesting because here are fishermen and a tax collector and all other manner of people in his ragtag crew who he is dubbing scribes trained for the kingdom. I just find that fascinating. I think in the flow of thought here, it just makes sense. Do you understand? Yes. Okay. Then as kingdom trained teachers, be like a master of 
a house, and so forth, and we'll get there in just a second. Now, if he is talking about his disciples, what he's saying in this parabolic statement that follows means that he wants them to be like this thing that he's going to illustrate. A master of a house, second part of verse 52, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Another really interesting phrase. What is he talking about? I suppose that in our culture, it's a bit more common than it would have been in Jesus' day for the average person to have considerably valuable items in their home. Maybe any of us could have an antique of some kind or a collectible of some kind, maybe a, an heirloom or even large amounts of cash or jewelry or something like that. And this word treasure in verse 52 is actually the same word used in verse 35 of Matthew 12. Again, you may or may not need to even turn a page. Matthew 12, 35. Look at how this word is used here. Talking about a tree being known by the fruit that comes. And he says in verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. That's in the context of the fruit that comes out of a person, spiritual fruit. Interestingly, this word translated treasure for us here in our text is a word that other versions, maybe you have one in front of you today, I believe the NIV and the HCSB translate it this way, the word storeroom. Perhaps you have that in front of you. So if, if that's the way you interpret it, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. So what Jesus is talking about here is what's valuable and stored up or treasured in your heart. That's where that treasure imagery, I think, gets a little more clear in chapter 12. What comes out of your treasure will be reflected. Good treasure will reflect good fruit. Bad treasure will reflect bad fruit. So I think he's talking about what's valuable, what's stored up and treasured in your heart. And so the trained, discipled scribes, so to speak, of Jesus' kingdom having a treasure trove in their hearts of what is both old and new regarding the kingdom is what he's talking about. In other words, friends, the glorious truths of God's rule over his world through his king and all that that entails. Oh, what a trove that is. The beautiful grace of God revealed in the exodus of his people out of Egypt. The re revelation of himself to his people at Sinai. His promises fulfilled to the people throughout their history. His constant faithful love graciously extended to them regardless of their repeated failures. Sending his son to fulfill his promises to bless the world through his people, the gracious and generous salvation that he has brought through the inauguration of his kingdom through Jesus. What a treasure trove of truth. What a storeroom 
that the disciples of Jesus have in their hearts as those trained for the kingdom of God. And it's from that storeroom, that treasure of their hearts, that Jesus says that discipled scribes of the kingdom will bring out or will teach, will share with others the truths of what is both old and new. The whole story of the kingdom of God and its advance. That's the point. That's why I've said that the third message of this passage is that a mission has been given. Disciples of Jesus are given a mission to share from the storerooms of treasures in their hearts of the truths of the kingdom of God. For to be like a kingdom-trained scribe, to be like an expert regarding the kingdom, just as the Jewish scribes were experts on the law, to be teachers of the kingdom. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to do, to go with their understanding of the kingdom through his teaching in these parables and teach it. And friends, you know this is coming. We've been given that mission too. Amen? Just like the disciples were given this mission. I think you could apply this to our lives by saying that in a sense, we too are like scribes of the kingdom. Those who engage our knowledge of the kingdom of God through teaching others. We are those who have been and are being and will continue to be trained in kingdom work. That's what being a disciple is. We're students of Christ and of the kingdom. You know, of course, I'm not talking about having a PhD level understanding of everything regarding the scriptures and its history and its doctrine but people who have simply seen and understand the truth that God loves his people and has made the way for them to be restored to him through faith in Christ. You know, this should remind us, actually, of what Jesus was going to say later to these very same disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 28. We keep going here all the time. I'm just going to keep going here every time it applies, and then one day we'll actually preach this passage in a couple of years. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You see what I mean? In our text today, Jesus wants his disciples to be teachers of what they received regarding his teaching on the kingdom of God. And after he went to the cross and after he was raised from the dead, it's the same thing that's included in what we refer to as the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Teaching. We are part of this mission. We too have this treasure trove in our hearts of what's been revealed to us. PhD level education or no formal theological education. We have this treasure trove in our hearts. The beauties of what God has revealed to his people before Jesus came, the old, you might say, and then what God has revealed in Jesus, the new. And friends, this is why it is so important that our local church be engaged with reaching into our community with the good news. 
We've got to. It is a matter of obedience to King Jesus. He has sent us on a mission to spread the truth, to share the good news, to grow the church. Yes, you heard me right. Part of our mission is church growth. That's where this gets really practical for us. And you might be going, oh, wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to obsess about church growth. No, we're very much in the business of church growth. We're not in the business of obsessing about mere numbers of people who are in a building at any given moment, but we should be driven by and zealous for the spread of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom, the growth of the church of Christ, both in our local gathering and in other churches around the world. That's literally the point. To spread the news of King Jesus' kingdom. To tell the world, as we have in our little uh, on the back in our visitor's table that there are two ways to live under the reign of self and under the reign of King Jesus. To call people around us to repentance and faith so that they might be saved. To call people, as Jesus has done in these parables, to lay down their lives, sell everything that they have in order to gain the eternal treasure of the kingdom of God worth all that you have. And you know, friends, ever since Jesus said these things, the kingdom of God has been advancing. Did you know that? Here we are 2,000 plus years later, and the people of God today, we are the instrument that God is using to continue to spread and advance his kingdom here and now. And I know it feels, as Jesus acknowledged, even in this third discourse of parables, it feels like sometimes the advance is slow and small. In comparison, at least, to the advance of other kingdoms or the kingdom of this world around us. And in one sense, that's true. We talked about this already. The kingdom of God is more of a slow and faithful progression of advance with certainly there are times where the, the growth spikes a bit. But think about what's been accomplished so far in history since Jesus says these things. Do you remember the empire that was at power when Jesus was saying these things? The Roman Empire. And are they around anymore? No. The Roman Empire fell. The source of so much persecution and discouragement and suffering in the early church is now gone. But the kingdom of God has prevailed. And there have been many other human kingdoms that the kingdom of God has outlasted too. The Babylonian Empire, the Ming Dynasty, the Romanov Empire, the Aztecs, the Ottomans. The kingdom of God has outlasted all of them. And it's outlasted others besides the ones I just listed. And it's going to outlast all the regimes of the world at this very moment. All the political powers of the world today. Thank you, I am not offended. <laughs> Did you know that Christianity is growing in some of the world's most hostile environments? If someone had asked you, would you have predicted that the kingdom would see a spike in its advance in communist China like it is seeing? That's happening. Or in animistic Africa, it's happening there too. Or in radical Islamic territory, it's growing there, too. 
And it can all be traced back to disciples of Jesus bringing out the treasure from the treasure troves of their hearts, the good news of King Jesus and teaching them all the things that he has commanded them. Friends, the madness in our world today ought to concern you, certainly. But it should not frighten you. And it should not discourage you. Because your membership in the kingdom of God means that you're on the winning side. No pagan culture can stop it. And in fact, we know how it ends. One day, the vision that John received in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, will come true. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is something we will see one day, my brothers and sisters. Count on it. A great multitude that no one could number. It may seem at times like the number of true followers of Jesus is small, and certainly in one sense it is, but in the end, the kingdom mission of Christ through his people will succeed, and we get to be part of it. Praise the Lord. The reality of the kingdom of God being one of sorting by the angels, is simultaneously a horrible and hopeful thing. Horrible because of the judgment that is coming for unrepentant sinners, but hopeful to those of us who are in Christ. Because we are on the winning side and privileged to be part of its advance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please... Steal our resolve. Refresh and renew our hearts through your word this morning. Cause us, believers gathered at Redeemer Bible Church, to be encouraged, resolved to live in light of this passage as a whole, and in particular when it comes to the mission that we've been given. I pray that you would use our church and every one of us in it to advance your kingdom in Brighton and the surrounding communities so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's take just a few moments to continue in prayer quietly in our hearts.
Amen.